Hello and welcome. This is Jonah Steinberg. I'm a Jewish chaplain at Harvard and the director of Harvard Hillel, and so glad to welcome you to this conversation about the themes week by week of our Torah readings. And amid this week in particular, with the outcome of the U.S. general election still uncertain as we record this conversation, I am especially glad about the two guests here with me whose dedication spans times and places and communities. I'll introduce these two wonderful people in a moment, but first to say, as to our Torah reading, that this week... Our story is of Ishmael and Isaac, of Sarah and Hagar, or Hagar, and Abraham. And so the ancient and heaven knows abiding challenge our Torah places right before us now is the question of whom we see and whom we consider as being integrally part of our family and story. Who figures in our narratives of nation and of peoplehood? And is rivalry and alienation from one another in the ancestral home the only possible stance for these two siblings? In the Jewish tradition, our, our titling of this weekly portion, as with all portions, um, is by its first distinctive Hebrew word. And so this week's reading is known as Vayera, which is a word to do with seeing. In particular, Abraham lifting up his eyes to behold the messengers who approach his and Sarah's tent to foretell the birth of Isaac. And so this is also a reading about vision. With me at this fateful juncture for our sibling relationships and our vision are Ambassador R. Nicholas Burns, who is the Roy and Barbara Goodman Family Professor of the Practice of Diplomacy and International Relations at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Ambassador Burns, it really bears saying in this particular moment, has a U.S. government career that spans three decades in administrations of both major parties, as a career foreign service officer, as undersecretary of state for political affairs, as the lead U.S. negotiator on Iran's nuclear program, on the National Security Council, and in the American Consulate General in Jerusalem, where he coordinated U.S. economic assistance to the Palestinian people in the West Bank. And there is so much more to Nick's distinguished career for which he has received 15 honorary degrees as well as the Presidential Distinguished Service Award and the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, among many other honors. Here at Harvard, Ambassador Burns is a founder and leader of programs and centers at the Kennedy School, including the Middle East Initiative. And beyond our campus, he is Executive Director of the Aspen Strategy Group and Aspen Security Forum, senior counselor at the Cohen Group, and also chairman of the board of Our Generation Speaks, which seeks to bring together young Palestinians and Israelis in common purpose. Speaking of which, here too, from Ma'ale Gilboa, uh, just near Jerusalem, is Amitai Abuzaglo of Harvard College's class of 2020. While at Harvard, where he was a leader, and I will add an inspiration in our Harvard Hillel community and in the campus interfaith community, Amitai founded an organization called Embodying Peace, which he now leads onward, fostering a dynamic volunteer network of students and young people that works across many organizations which make up what Amitai likes to call the peace building ecosystem. 
uh, as a member of the Alliance for Middle East Peace, embodying peace, particularly in this pandemic time, focuses on strengthening the infrastructure of peace-building civil society efforts by increasing staff capacity through remote volunteer opportunities and has just graduated its first crop of summer peace-building fellows. So, Ambassador Burns, thinking of the siblings and the ancestral home, as we read the Torah this week, this week, perhaps I can start by asking you a question about that theme of vision um, and say that in advance of this US election, my own email inbox began to fill up at least on one side with partisan messages predicting that if we had a change of US administration, we would also see a return to a discredited peacemaking orthodoxy in which a sibling reconciliation in the family home, so to speak, between Israelis and Palestinians would be seen as the essential anterior step. Right? The opposing argument that these emails are making uh, really harks back tacitly all the way to the revisionist Zionism of Zev Jabotinsky, who in his Iron Wall essay of 1923 wrote, we cannot offer any adequate compensation to the Palestinian Arabs in return for Palestine, and therefore there is no likelihood of any voluntary agreement being reached. And so Jabotinsky went on back to say that the only way to reach an agreement in the future is to abandon all idea of seeking an agreement in the present. Um, so all the way back in the 1920s, and now in my email inbox of the 2020s, there is an argument amounting to suggesting that what we've seen recently in moves like the relocation of the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem and the normalization of relationships between Israel and the UAE is actually the best route toward an eventual Israeli-Palestinian settlement, because only when the Palestinian Ishmael, so to speak, finally gives in to the inevitable ascendancy of his rival sibling will there be a willingness on that part to make peace. So with that long preamble, the question is, am I right in thinking that that is what you are up against in your own career, Nick? And what do you think, especially in this moment of, of that argument? Well, Rabbi Steinberg, thank you so much for the invitation to be with you and with Amitai. And I really um, respect both of you so much. When you, when, you, when you frame the question, I actually thought about our home first here in the United States. I thought about the rivalries and divisions. I mean, think of the way we're divided, red, blue, north, south, urban, rural, coastal, interior. And I think a lot of us were hoping, maybe on both sides of, of this divide, that our election would clarify uh, the power struggle in the country, but also might lead to a period of healing and unfortunately, in the 48 hours since the election, we see little healing and more division. And let us hope that that, that can change. But I think that uh, peace and understanding and a nation coming together, brothers coming together and sisters has to begin at home. And uh, I spent, I've spent, as you said, all of my professional life, either living overseas, representing the United States, back in Washington, D.C. at the State Department and White House or here at Harvard, thinking about our relationship with the rest of the world. But I've become convinced, especially in the last year or two, that the United States cannot succeed in its foreign and defense policy if it's not more united uh, and more peaceful. 
been more generous uh, here at home. And without betraying my political sensitivities too much, I would say that when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris came out on March, March 4th, the day after the election, and the primary message that Vice President Biden had was, we are not enemies. We are citizens. We are friends. We're neighbors. Boy, do we need that lesson from the Torah today. Uh, and we need to reflect on its meaning for us all as Americans. And then I, I really want to hear Amitai's view. So I just say on the, and he's closer to the issue because he's living in Jerusalem. He's working directly on the ground. But um, after my own 35 year experience living in Egypt and Israel and now chairing an organization that seeks to bring young Palestinians and Israelis together in common businesses and to give them joint business training at Brandeis, that's our generation speaks. I think, I, I think I'm more convinced than ever we need to build peace from the ground up in the Middle East. Of course you have the obligation of the Israeli government, the Palestinian Authority, the US government is a friend to both to try to nurture peace at the diplomatic table. That was my experience in government. It has to come from the people and it has to come from the ground up and it cannot be foisted upon them. Both have to be ready for it. And so I really um, admire what Amitai is doing. And um, I really believe in what our organization, our generation of speaks is doing. I just say that one of the problems I recognized when I was working I was living in East Jerusalem in a Palestinian neighborhood. My wife and I had two little kids a long time ago in the 1980s. But working in the West Bank, I really felt then, and I think now that part of the major core of the problem is that too many Israelis don't see the Palestinians as people with wives, husbands, kids, parents, hopes, fears, futures, pasts, and too many Palestinians think of Israel and one Israelis in one dimensional terms. And the common humanity is difficult for them to see as they oppose each other across the barricades. I think it's got to start there. So let me turn exactly that to you, Amitai, in exactly the location where you are. I mean, it strikes me that you are in something of an enclave in the, in the yeshiva where you are and that there are Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Arabs in close proximity. Um, and I wonder, apart from the work through embodying peace, what you and your compatriots in the yeshiva see and think and take part of in, in, in terms of uh, that ground and, and anything that might be built from the ground up. Um. In yeshiva, we um, we spend most of our day poring over um, texts that speak with a multi-layered sense um, of history, of um, multiple perspectives, and of uh, very deep disagreements and. the sitting down uh, with uh, multiple. So I actually want to first reflect on that as something that um, must be foregrounded whenever we're trying to conceive of shared 
uh, territory, a home. A home is a place where one can feel um, that, that someone is there to listen to them, that, that, that someone is there to, to speak with them. And um, this, the yeshiva that I'm studying at is, is, is mostly an Israeli yeshiva. And um, the uh, main conversation is actually the U.S. elections. Um, people are thinking about that constantly. Uh, one thing that, that I, I want to reflect in terms of trying to, to think about the U.S. and um, Israeli-Palestinian context as, in, as, as some sort of uh, mirror image, um, but also to show where those, where those images fly, the, um, the U.S. Uh, young political generation, you know, what's often been described as those who um, have been pushing, you know, for you know, progressive revolution, uh, within the Democratic uh, Party and, and, and a new culture of community organizers that, that, that in the United States, when, when people are thinking about the, the current divisions or thinking about um, the, the, the battle between um, a monoculture or a multiculturalism, that people often, they look, they look to hope in the, in the youth because they, they grew up with a much more uh, diverse and, 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 and multifarious American image. And it happens to be that Israeli and Palestinian youth have the opposite experience because the physical boundaries of interaction and the um, psychological boundaries um, of interaction and of conversation have only grown and grown, especially since the um, 90s Oslo process and uh, eventually uh, to the last uh, strong attempt um, at, at negotiating between the parties in 2014. And so the, the, the focus of much of the grassroots peace building ecosystem is with youth um, because unlike the parents, the sense of peace um, until these recent normalization deals did not reflect the reality in which they grew up. And, and we're talking about a generation, if we, we bring a parallel to the, the generation of community organizers in the United States, it's a generation that, that, that lived through uh, the second intifada and that lived through uh, you, you know, uh, rockets and that lived through expansion of, uh, of settlements and that lived through more blockades. And so the uh, work of grassroots peace building, it encompasses more than just youth engagement, but the story needs to begin there because in order to, to begin um, speaking in terms of a shared reality, there must be a shared means uh, to create a sense of brotherhood and a shared sense of, of um, responsibility toward each other, which is the next step uh, when we agree to invite each other's, at least for one conversation. You know, Amitai, you speak about the multiple voices in classical rabbinic tradition, which, which I love too, in the, in the Talmudic tradition. What actually strikes me most as regards the Ishmael and Isaac story is a really uh, notable silence among our Torah commentators. In the scripture, God reassures Abraham, saying about Ishmael, also the son of the handmaiden, I will make into a nation for he is your seed. But if we look into the margins at that point in our classic compendia of Torah with rabbinic commentaries, almost all of our running commentators simply jump that verse. They say nothing about it. 
it, it's hard to read a silence, but I can't help thinking it amounts to our rabbis saying, well, well, that's your promise, God, you take care of it. It's not a commandment to us, not our responsibility. And so, uh, Ambassador Burns, I wonder about that question, about how much we must take part or take heart, to heart, the promise to the other, um, so that the question is, how much must we take into our hearts the promise to Ishmael, also that one I shall make into a nation, even as some would point out how, that Ishmael today has quite a number of countries to Israel's one, the question of whether the fulfillment of the other sibling's promise must somehow be part of this sibling's purview. Well, I think that's a, that's a very important grounding point in the politics of the Middle East, particularly the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. It's hard to think of them as having direct commitments to each other when they've been warring, fighting, arguing, throwing rocks, throwing bombs for all of Israel's existence, going well back before that, if you think of the Arab revolt of the 1930s in Pal against British rule and Jewish immigration to Palestine in the 30s. It's been a long time. And so that common sense that we're responsible for each other, that we're a part of a greater whole, hopefully we can rediscover that in the United States, but think of the barriers to, re to even elevating it into the discussion uh, in the West Bank and Gaza and in Israel proper among these very different parties. And so it has to come from the ground up because we have to assume from the very beginning, if you're a Palestinian in a refugee camp, outside of Nablus, or you're an Israeli um, fearful of this conflict living in Tel Aviv, I mean, you've got to assume that there is a common home that must be built. And I think we've lost a sense of that. I served in the Middle East, in, in Israel, a long time ago, between 1985 and 1987. I left just before the several months before the first intifada broke out in late 1987. But I, could, I can tell you having been in the West Bank, you know, most days for two years, that more Israelis understood the Arabs, more Israelis spoke Arabic. That generation of Teddy Kalik and Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres, they spoke Arabic. Teddy Kalik, when he was growing up, when he, after he immigrated, made to Israel, to, in, to Palestine, he said, we considered ourselves Palestinians in the 1920s, in the 1930s. There was a, a knowledge of each other and a knowledge that the land had to be shared. And now I think that's lost in many respects on the Israeli side, this settler movement in many ways, with some exceptions, really denies the existence of the Palestinians. Among some of the Palestinians who focus on violence, they want to destroy Israel and destroy Israelis, not live with them. So I think we've, they've lost a lot of that common humanity, the vision of, that we have responsibilities to each other. Peace begins there. It can't be imposed by diplomats from above and last very long if it's not in the people. Uh, so that's my 
that's my attempt to answer your really searching question. Yeah, I mean, as you say that, Nick, I think of uh, of Nietzsche Rozovsky, who is married to our to our friend uh, Emeritus Dean Henry Rozovsky of Harvard. And Nietzsche comes from a family that she is, I think, the seventh generation of Jerusalemites. Um, so a family that goes back in Jerusalem to long before the state. And she she tells a story from her own experience as a as as a teenager um, and then onward. Uh, to a time right after the the Six Day War, when it was finally possible for her family to drive to Ramallah, where they uh, they ran a bakery, a major bakery in in Jerusalem that the family still runs, um, but where they had supplied a, a cafe for years and years before uh, the state, and and they drove out there with such trepidation, not knowing how they would be received, walked into this cafe, and as Nietzsche describes it, they fell into each other's arms crying. Um, you know, that is, of course, not the way the story has progressed. And, you know, Amitai, uh, I, I love to bring rabbinic commentary from the milieu that you're in very much into these conversations. And, you know, in our Torah, when Sarah insists to Abraham that he banish Hagar and Ishmael, it's when Sarah sees Ishmael, the son of the handmaiden, mitzachek. Now, playing, which sounds very innocent if we translate it that way, but some interpretations suggest mocking. And nobody, perhaps especially in Israel, wishes to wind up a dupe, or as Israelis say, a friar, having mistaken underhanded tactics for well-meaning play. So, um, let me add to our conversation this this midrash that says that what what Sarah overheard was Ishmael saying to Isaac, "Let's play at bows and arrows. I'll shoot, you catch." Right, um, and that midrash seems to say that in this particular sibling relationship, one must always be suspicious. Right? Look beneath the surface of any apparent amity for ulterior motives. So I wonder, as you build embodying peace and you bring volunteers in good faith into these interactions, um, the, the sense of trust and trustworthiness that, that you have, um, not only on the other side, but, you know, I go back to that Jabotinsky essay in which, in which he wrote, um, they know what we want just as well as we know what they do not want. <laughs> Can we ever get past that? is what I'm asking you. Do, you. do you have a sense of getting past that with your volunteers? Um, before answering the question, you raised uh, a point about the near silence of the rabbinic commentarial tradition on the Torah of, of really going into the promise that's made to Ishmael and the descendants of Ishmael. And last week I came across an incredible commentary, uh, Sforno, wrote that, what do we learn from the Ishmaelites? Um, we learn what it means to be persistent in faith of the ultimate return, right? Of the Messianic age, which, which of course in the Jewish tradition entails a return to Zion, right? And, and he says, where do we learn this? We learn this by the fact that um, it took many, many hundreds of years until the Ishmaelite blessing was, was, was um, ripened uh, into the Islamic community that emerged in the seventh century. Uh, and so he's, he's saying that we actually learn from, 
from each other's history. And in some sense, we can even gain faith uh, somehow uh, within our own lens through that shared history. But in terms of embodying peace and, and, and the organizations that we support through uh, volunteer capacity, um, it's very different when the, um, when the social and political realities prevent um, trust from emerging on an everyday basis, right? As in the institutions of everyday life, um, businesses, they're different. Meaning even if there are um, Palestinians and Israelis working in a shared space, oftentimes they're not going to be working as partners. They're not going to be working as the shared visionaries. And that's what is very powerful about an organization like Our, Our Generation Speaks. Um, so what do these organizations often do? Is they provide a space not only to dialogue, not only to uh, surface the, the agony, to surface the frustrations, to, to, to surface their confusion about why the other group can't live with my people, with me, right, as I am, where I am. Um, but they also focus on very concrete um, skills, building. So there are a number of tech-oriented uh, peace-building organizations. There are a number of organizations that are focused on acquiring language skills. Um, there are those that try and, try and work on, 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 on providing a youth movement for youth in Jerusalem across uh, faith backgrounds. And so what happens is when, once you create that shared context of collaborative work, you know, all of those questions, all of those frustrations, all of those uh, points of mistrust, they, 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 get, they get softened from the sense of being with a real person and not with the monster that you grew up imagining um, and that you subsisted, right, uh, on, in, in terms of forging your own identity. And it often provides um, a tr transformation of how you see yourself and your own people in the story of uh, Israel-Palestine with respect to um, who you are um, and, to, and, to, and to which of the houses you belong. You know, Ambassador Burns, I heard you really clearly when you insisted that that peace must begin at home. Um, and yet, I wonder what you think of, you know, those who argue that whether by brilliant strategy or blundering brute force, the past four years have at least seriously challenged what John Kerry, for instance, meant when he said there will be no separate peace between Israel and the Arab world. Um, and those who would argue that peace must be built, first of all, with the surrounding countries, and only then will we see a willingness at home to come to some kind of stability or reconciliation. Well, I think we know the answer, uh, uh, Jonah, to the first part of the question. Uh, the Arabs are beginning, the Arab states are beginning to make peace with Israel before there's peace between Israel and the Palestinians. The UAE and uh, Bahrain and Sudan have all made that choice. And as we all know, there's been behind the scenes cooperation quite substantial between Israel and some of these states and others like Saudi Arabia for uh, many years. So I think the Arabs, the fact that Iran has become the major adversary of both Israel and the, the Gulf states and the Sunni Arab world has brought them together. And it's understandable. And from an American perspective, I believe this very strongly. This is very positive. We've always wanted Israel, uh, we American friends of Israel, to emerge from isolation, to be able to live in the region. 
I always thought it was so strange when I lived in East Jerusalem that you, know, you couldn't even drive from Jerusalem to Damascus. Or it's very difficult to get across the Allenby Bridge into Jordan. You couldn't go to Iraq. And if you think about the world before May 14th, 1948, it was an integrated economic social system. And it was all sundered uh, abruptly in, the, in May, 9, June, 1948. So it's a very positive thing that this has come back, that, that Israel is emerging from its isolation and we should push this forward. I hope more Arab states will come back and make this choice. But having said that, Israelis, I think, this is not peace in the Middle East. This is peace between Israel and some Arab countries. But the UAE and Bahrain have never been at war with Israel. They've never fought Israel. They weren't even in existence when Israel, Israel came into existence. Um, the, I think Israelis have to understand while this is very positive, the Palestinians are not gonna disappear. And international support for a Palestinian state is not gonna disappear. I think President Trump uh, made a very irresponsible mistake in withdrawing all United States economic assistance to the Palestinians. I used to run the program. I can tell you how many people depend on our support for what we've been doing in the West Bank and East Jerusalem to try to build economic activities, businesses, build schools, build health clinics, build roads, scholarships for young Palestinians to, to study in the, West, in, in, in the United States. But more importantly, even is the fact that we withdrew funding from the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, and so we're taking bread off people's tables, people who are objectively poor in refugee camps. And so I think that America, American responsibility needs to come back and the Israelis need to understand that given, given demographics, the Palestinians will outnumber them at some point. Israel should wanna live in a Jewish state that's democratic, not a state that colonizes another people forever. Now I'm not suggesting that this responsibility for peace rests only on Israel. It rests on the Palestinians. And right now they're divided. Hamas is not interested in peace. The Palestinian Authority is not together. It's not united. They haven't had democratic elections. So the responsibility is on both sides. But I hope Israelis understand that while this is very positive, they're now accepted by Arab states. The crucial relationship for them has to be the one right in Jerusalem, right on the green line right in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They've got to make that right. And the Palestinians need to make it right too. I think Amitai of the way in which your family has deep roots in, in the region. And so I wonder from a personal point of view, how, how you yourself narrate the sibling relationship. I'd love to hear a bit about that as we, as we head toward concluding the conversation. Certainly, I'll, I'll just share very briefly. My um, paternal grandparents are from Morocco, uh, from Marrakesh. They immigrated to Israel in 1963. My father was born in Israel. So my family um, has stories of uh, sheikhs, uh, you know, healing uh, family members and um, the first friends that my grandfather made when they immigrated were Palestinians in Nazareth, um, where they moved to. And um, at the same time, uh, my family also experienced a number of, of, of war and war trauma. Um, and so it's a very complicated relationship. Um, 
I, I actually, I, in, in, in reflecting on um, what we call the house of Ishmael and uh, the house of, of um, Jacob, of Yitzchak, the, um, those worlds, those houses are, are incredibly diverse. And it happens to be that in the particular juncture of Jewish history and of Islamic history, that the center point, the meeting point, is um, largely in the region of Israel-Palestine. And that, of course, affects the relationship between the homes elsewhere. And, and, I, and, and I worked for, for, uh, for my entire college career on uh, working on Muslim-Jewish reconciliation, solidarity building on a campus and, 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 and beyond. Um, which is also incredibly important because it is very much fractured by what happens in Israel-Palestine. So as, as the center, it affects the way that we can interact outside of it, though it doesn't, it doesn't restrict the interaction that happens outside of it. So I think that the, um, the reflection is that when we want to think about the relationship between um, two sibling uh, traditions to sibling peoples, right? The Ummah and, and the Am. Um, it's, it's, it's a relationship that uh, it exists wherever there are Jews and wherever there are Muslims. Um, and, and it's a relationship that, that we can inspire each other. What we're doing in the United States can inspire what we can do in Israel-Palestine. We do in Israel-Palestine can inspire what we can do in the United States. Um, and, and for example, I'll just say that um, in recent months, along with um, a very close friend of mine and a Harvard Hill student leader, um, I co-founded uh, something called the Jewish Movement for Uyghur Freedom. Um, and we're, we're building a number of projects uh, to support Uyghur civil society and to plug in leaders of Jewish civil society and synagogues and campuses into such efforts. And so very much, I think that my story of, 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 of trying to uh, connect uh, the two houses and to invite each other into a shared sacred space. Uh, it began in Israel-Palestine, but, but it certainly um, has expanded and, and God willing, I, I hope it will continue to and, and also to deepen as well. The story in our Torah this week also includes a treaty really framed as such in the narrative forged between Avraham, Abraham, and a local monarch, Avimelech. So already in the Torah itself, we are pointed from the Ishmael and Isaac story straight into the work of negotiation and of peacemaking. That's right there in the scripture. So it really is an honor to open that book together with the two of you, particularly in this time, the two of you who are peace seekers and work so concertedly to be peacemakers. So let me say to both of you how grateful I am to each of you for what you both do and for this good company together. Thank you both so very much. Rabbi Steinberg, thank you. And Amitai, thank you. Let us pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Amen. Pray for peace amen. in the Middle East. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you both so much. Jonah, thank you. That was wonderful. Amitai, it's so 